0: please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning, Saints. let turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Our attention this morning will be in verses 13 and 14, but I want to read the enti- this entire pericope for, for context, so we'll read from verse 13 to chapter 3 and verse 5. Hear God's Word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. There are a number of events in life. That have the potential to derail someone who was running the race well. If you consider the Christian life uh, with the analogy of a race, then you might say that there are a number of rocks, a number of sharp corners, a number of hills that, along the way, have the potential of causing a good runner to stumble. The Scripture. Is full of such warnings. Consider, for example, the Lord's parable of the sower. You remember that parable in Luke chapter 8. Among the soils, we find those who were choked out by the love of this world. That's what derailed them. It was the love of this world. There were those who were derailed by varying trials and tribulations, the Lord Jesus tells us. And there were those who fell away even because of a severe time of testing. These times, these events, come not only for you as an individual, but also come for local churches. At many times and in many seasons, local churches are tested by the Lord through various means. Take, for example, the church at Thessalonica. By all accounts, the church at Thessalonica was a healthy church. Uh, You and I recently saw the planting of this church in Acts chapter 17. When we look at Acts chapter 17 uh, in November, Uh, this church was planted by Paul and his companions and when it was planted by the church and his by Paul and his companions soon after that, we're hearing from Paul in 1 Thessalonians the testimony that the church has been doing really well. They've been running the race well, they've been loving the Lord, they've loved other believers, they've labored in love and they've partnered even in this short time uh, with Paul in his preaching of the gospel. The whole of 1 Thessalonians is Paul thanking God for the great work that is continuing there in Thessalonica. But then word reaches Paul that some people have other ideas and some have twisted what Paul said in his first letter regarding regarding the coming of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul teaches the church that the return of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul says this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 3. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And apparently it appears that some have taken what Paul has said to mean that the Lord might come so unexpectedly that he has already come. It appears that there are rumors of a letter coming from Paul saying that the Lord is already here, saying that the resurrection has already happened and that the end of the world has already occurred. And so Paul quickly writes to Thessalonians to calm down the church and assure them of the truth of Jesus' coming, that it will be first be preceded by a number of events, including the revelation of the man of sin. He argues this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 from verse 1. Toss toss your eyes up to verse 1 of chapter 2, the chapter that we're in here in 2 Thessalonians. Look at what Paul says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was with, still with you, that I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, him, restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You see, Paul here is calming them down and telling them, no, do not be deceived by all these people who are telling you that the resurrection has already happened, that the world has already ended. There's a, there a number of other things that must happen first before the Lord Jesus comes and appears. So he's telling them, do not be alarmed. The world has not ended. There are certain truths that must take place first before the world ends. Paul then, in our text from verse 13, states to them them the core of his message to them. After telling them to calm down, he's then here from verse 13, refocusing them on his core message of this letter. And that is this, do not be alarmed, but rather stand firm. In guiding this alarmed and shaken church, he reminds them of essential truths that they must remember and live by. What Paul says to the Thessalonians from verse 13 of chapter 2 is a good and necessary reminder to all Christians, regardless of what season we are in. As the year begins, we as a church are dealing with a change which has the potential to derail us. You, as an individual, will most likely at some point through the year, face something that has the potential to shake you, to make you feel as though the world has ended. And it is in this backdrop that we will study these verses over the next three weeks. We'll study these verses from verse 13. And this morning, I want us to pay attention to verse 13 and 14. And next week, we'll pick it up from verse 15. So read verse 15 with me again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here says something that he has already said at the beginning of the letter from verse in chapter 1 verse 3, the substance of which he will repeat again later on in chapter 3. And this is also the same things that he has said throughout the first letter of Thessalonians. And that is this, he thanks God that these people, the Thessalonians, have been chosen by God for salvation. Over and over again, Paul repeats this as a chorus. Praise be to the Lord for our salvation. If you have any experience with a five-year-old, you know that they have an amazing capability of saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and over again. They repeat the same thing. They keep talking about the same thing until you pay attention to them. They'll ask you that thing until you stop what you're doing and answer the question. Why is it that a five-year-old does that? Well, because they're interested in it and, or they're asking you a question that they want you to answer immediately. Paul's five-year-old moment throughout his letters is with regards to thanking God for all the benefits of salvation in Jesus Christ. Throughout Paul's letters, you will find Paul either thanking God for salvation and all of, his benef- all of its benefits, or encouraging others to remember Jesus Christ and all the benefits that are found in him. But I want you to notice here how Paul says it here in, this, in these verses. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you. We should always give thanks to God for you. He said it exactly the same way in chapter 1 and verse 3. Toss your eyes to chapter 1 and verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It is a bit of an odd construction for Paul to put it this way. Normally, Paul will say, we always give thanks to God for you because of what God has done. He normally says it that way. We always give thanks to God for you. When we remember you, we always give thanks to God for you. He says that to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians. But here he says it in a different way. He uses this Greek word, of filio, which generally suggests a debt something that is owed he says we owe god a debt of gratitude for you because of his grace that is abundant toward you now i would easily chalk this up to just semantics it's just the way that he wrote it but he repeats it that makes me pause He repeats it, he says it that way at the beginning of the letter, and then he says it again that way in here in chapter 2, and he never says it that way in any of his other letters. And that makes me think this is worthy of pause and consideration. So pause with me here, and let us consider this ought, this should. Have I considered my life... And the life of the people in our church to such a degree that I'm aware that I owe God a debt of gratitude for what he has done. That is, have I as a believer, as a part of a local body where God has bestowed his new covenant blessings, have I noticed that I'm in debt to God for all that he has done and is doing among us. Maybe put this question a different way. Am I so aware of what it is that we have been given in Christ that it is clear in my mind that I owe God a debt of gratitude for myself and those in Christ around me? The reality, friends, is that these things that Paul mentions here regarding the thessalonians are true of us and because they are true of us if we saw them clearly we would have a nagging sense like paul that we owe god constantly a debt of gratitude it is not a debt of gratitude that is paid once i've praised you god i've said thank you and that's enough Because of the magnitude of what it is that we have in Christ, we constantly should have a nagging sense that we owe God a debt of gratitude. If you had a big tarantula on your face, a big spider right here on your face, on your forehead, you probably couldn't just go about your day, could you? Probably couldn't just, well, let's do the laundry now and and let's go ahead and, and type this email. You couldn't do that. There would be a lot of screaming, some of you, and there would be a lot of moving around. You would, be, you would have a constant nagging sense that something has happened, there's a situation that is here, that requires you to respond in some way. You couldn't just continue as normal. In the same way, you and I ought you and I should have a constant sense like a big tarantula on our faces. We ought to have a constant sense that we owe God a great, unending, enduring thanks because we are beloved by him, because we have been sanctified by the Spirit and given belief in the truth, because we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be called to the glory of Jesus Christ. This reality should be like a big fat tarantula on our foreheads, constantly causing us to think about it. Constantly thinking, what a great debt of gratitude I owe you, Lord. Praise be to you for what you have done to me and what you are doing in me and what you have achieved for me categorically. This is what Paul is showing us by his example. But you see, ours, friends, is the same problem that most Christians have had since they received the gospel, and that is, we tend to live by sight and not by faith. In other words, our sense of obligation to God is controlled more by what we see, feel, taste, touch, and smell than what we do not see. We are prone to be directed and controlled not by these invisible truths, but by visible troubles. Our hearts are given over to sense experience and not the state of our supernatural existence. You following me? We are genuinely controlled in our hearts by what we see, by what we feel, by what's going on. We are generally not controlled by these invisible realities that are standing and are are true and are unmovable. Most times, it feels as though true reality is this that I am experiencing here. Heartbreak, sin, corruption, my own failures, others' failures, fleeting moments of joy, You know those fleeting moments of joy like being at a wedding and being excited, but the the feeling doesn't last because the experience doesn't last. We go back to our troubles on Monday. A lot of times it appears as though the challenges and the troubles last longer than those fleeting moments of joy. Even just think about our, our Sabbath rest on the Lord's Day. You come to church on the Lord's Day only once, and maybe you meet the believers once during the week, but most of the time, you are surrounded by the world. And that ends up being what, is, what feels real, what feels more like true reality. But Paul would have you remember that there is a, that while those things are true, those things that you're experiencing are true, there is a real and bigger reality. And he tells us in verse 13 and 14, you are beloved by the lord the lord has chosen you from the beginning to be saved you are being sanctified by the spirit and you were sanctified by the spirit and given belief in the truth and you are being enabled by the spirit to continue believing the truth and you have been called in verse 14 to obtain the glory of the lord jesus christ but your problem is that you you you, you're Your mind is too much here, and these experiences. Paul expressed this problem and its solution much better in his letter to the Ephesians. He says this in Ephesians chapter 2, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, listen to this, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You need this power to work in you so that you may know what truly it is that you have. He goes on in chapter 3, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you, listen what He wants you to be granted, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all all the fullness of God. The issue is not what you have, the issue is your remembrance, your understanding, your tasting, your constant thinking about what it is that you have. The fact that sometimes it loses its reality to you. Reality is more so what you experience here. You need to see what it is that has been done for you. You need to see exactly who it is that is working for your benefit. And so Paul prays that your mind might be enlarged, so you might understand all these things. Invisible truths. Last year, I determined that it was time for my eldest son to be introduced to his father's favorite sports. So early in the year, we were in KZN, and I bought him his very first Sharks rugby jersey. And I explained to him the sport and showed him some Sharks Sharks games in our heyday, And my son was hooked. And of course, it was also the year of the World Cup. And so I had to explain to him that in addition to us supporting the Sharks, as a family, we also support the Springboks. And that was my mistake. Because if you remember last year, the Springboks kept winning. And so my five-year-old, in his little mind, understood perfectly why we support the Springboks. They always win. Why wouldn't we support them? But then the World Cup ended, and then again we were watching some Sharks games. And the Sharks, to put it gently, are not the (laughs) Springboks. The Sharks get whooped week in, week out. And my five-year-old son is asking me, why on earth do we support this useless team? (laughs) Let's support the Bulls. He does not see the intangible reason. I explained to him that his father is a man from Zululand and that since I was a kid growing up, our team was always the Sharks. I tell him of all my great experiences of watching the Sharks at the Shark Tank. I explained to him all the emotion that I have for Durban as my original city and that our roots are there and just because we are losing doesn't mean we change allegiance. We are who we are for better or worse. But he does not buy it. This team sucks. (laughs) See, his mind is too small. He believes that a team exists to win, and if a team loses, there's nothing else that matters. In many ways, you are acting like my five-year-old when you base your, all, your whole entire emotional state on the losses, the griefs, and the frustrations that you experience here. There are bigger and more real invisible truths, and those are the ones that enable Paul to say to you, rejoice, not sometimes, but always. What always remains, dear friends, is that you owe God a debt of gratitude because of what he has done for you and those sitting around you in the church. So what are we supposed to do? How do we ensure that we are like Paul in remembering that we ought always to give thanks to God for these blessings. I believe the key is in us properly understanding the structure of what Paul is saying here in verses 13 and 14. Paul, in his sentence construction in verse 13 and 14, tells us, first, the, the thing we have, second, the reason we have it, and third, the means by which we have it. So there's three things here. The thing we have, the reason we have it, and the means by which we have it. If you look at verses 13 and 14, what is it that we actually have in Christ? What is it that we have? What is the thing that we have? Well, it says there, we would always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So what do we have? Salvation. Verse 14, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain, what? The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it that we have? Salvation, which here Paul calls the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we have it? What's the reason that we have this salvation, this glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why have we obtained this glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well again look at look at the sentence but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved so why do we have it we are beloved by the Lord and so he chose us for it he loved us and so he picked us so we can have it he loved us and so he selected us to enjoy it. And thirdly, what is the means by which we have it? How do we have it? Well, again, look at the sentence. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. What do we have? Salvation. Why do we have it? God loved us and chose us to it. And how do we have it? Through sanctification and belief in the truth. What do we have? Salvation. Why do we have it? We are loved by the Lord. How do we have it? God sanctified us and gave us belief in the gospel, which is the truth. Let's slow down. Number one, what do we have? Salvation the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, friends, Christ Jesus of Nazareth is the only man to earn an ascension to the hill of the Lord. Jesus Christ, by his own righteousness oozing from him, is the only man Whom the gates of heaven were commanded to open because he is at the door. Guarantee you now, if you tried to go to the gates of heaven and say, open for me. They would say, who are you? But as Christ was coming on his victory horse towards those glorious gates of heaven. Everyone in the city of gold screamed, open, the king is coming. Why? Because he has earned it by his righteousness excellence he has earned it because he is indeed the king of glory and now notice this in Revelation we're told that Christ is the only one worthy of opening the title deed to the entire cosmos and its future there is a moment there in the book of Revelation chapter 5 where John is weeping because the angels are looking over the earth in the earth, under the earth, in heaven, looking who is worthy to open this title deed of the earth, to open the future, to govern the rest of existence. Who is worthy to do it? And the angels go everywhere and they find not a single one. And then the elders say, the lamb, the line of the tribe of Judah, he has conquered, he is worthy. That's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I have been been given salvation, which here means we have been given to enter into his glory. We in Christ are called co-heirs with him. We feast with him at his conquering table. What did we conquer? Do you feel like a conqueror? What have you conquered this past week? Tell me. When you're being petted this way like that, like... A cat with a ball. Your sin just doing this and that with you. Your emotions doing this and that with you. Like a cat playing with a ball. Do you feel like a conqueror? Even if. The reality is though. Is that even if you don't feel like it. What does the scripture call you? You're more than a conqueror. More than a victor. In him. In him. You sit at his conquering glorious table. Because he has achieved salvation for you. This this salvation consists of you entering into his glory, judging angels and ruling the universe forever with your Lord. Remember always what Paul says, everything is yours. Do you know that? Everything is yours. You can just walk around the earth and say, "I'll, I'll come back for you in a trillion years time. You can walk by another thing, I'll come back for you, just two trillion years, I'll see you. What Paul says, what Paul means is that everything is ours. The world is given to us. Not now, but when the Lord returns, we will see the fruition of that. That everything, the universe is ours. The angels are ours to judge. I'm convinced, saints, that a lot of our angst and frustrations can be mapped exactly to this. We forget what it is that we have. On the one hand, when we forget what we have, we are tempted to complain and grumble about our temporal circumstances like the Israelites on the way to Canaan. Do you remember them? On the other hand, when we forget what we have, when we forget that we have this salvation, we live as though this salvation has not come and we are just like the people who do not have it. Those who have no hope. See, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, How can a Christian take another Christian to court? Why not rather lose here knowing what it is that you actually have? Do you not realize what it is that you have been given? Why does it matter so much to you that you are losing here and that you are being wronged? Why does it affect you so much such that you take another Christian to court? I would extend that and say, why does it affect you so much such that you grumble and complain? Such that you make the Lord Jesus Christ seem like a hard master. When he isn't, he has given you everything. Like the unforgiving servant in that great parable, when we forget what we have, we involve ourselves in petty disputes that are unbecoming of people of the sort of what we have. I don't know if you've ever read any old British novel like Sherlock Holmes or something of that era. When you read those novels, you see how eloquently sometimes the writers show that there are British nobles who are up here and then there were peasants down here. And the nobles would never stoop so low as to do the things that the peasants do down here. While this might be a bad analogy, I'm not trying to say that we should all act like snobs. Please don't. Quite the contrary. But the reality is, saints, because of what you have, there are certain, lists, there are certain things you simply have no business participating in. Because of what you have, you have salvation. You have Christ. You have no business returning hate with hate. You have Christ. Why would you do that when you have salvation in Christ? You have Christ. You have no business showing partiality of any kind. What are you doing? You've been born again. You've been drawn to Christ. Why would you treat people in that way as though you do not have salvation in Christ? Why are you using the tactics of the world when you have now been redeemed from it? You have no business, dear saint, giving yourself over to addictions of all sorts. You, a child of God, given over to addictions. No, you have no business. You have been saved, drawn out of this. You've been given new life, the fullness of God. Why would you participate in things that are earthy? Why would you participate in things that are natural when you are now supernatural? when your identity now is fixed in the supernatural realm and you live there. Remember what Paul says. This is not really us. Our life is hidden together with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we will be revealed with him. The unspoken truth of the salvation offered in Christ well, the spoken truth, the forgotten truth of the salvation that we have in trust in Christ is that Christ Himself is the prize. If you know Christ, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you should leave all the nonsense and stay by his side. Why would you leave his side and come down and participate? in the foolishness of men who do not know him. This is the argument that the apostles always say to us in the New Testament. Notice they always say, live in a manner worthy of the calling with you which you have received. This is the calling. You have been loved by God and taken to him to have salvation. That's what we have. We have salvation. Why do we have it? Well, here Paul tells us Brothers, beloved of the Lord, you were chosen to this salvation. You were chosen because God loved you, because God loved you to be a part of the kingdom that will never end. Okay. But why was I so chosen? Why was I so loved? Is it because God looked at me and saw how badly mistreated I've been in my life? No. This choosing happened before your life was even there. Is it because God looked at me and saw how, I could, how useful I could be to Christ and his kingdom? Trust me, no. <laughs> he did not look at you and say, wow, this one's going to be useful in my kingdom. Let me choose him. No, not at all. Is it because God looked at me and saw my sinless perfection? Excuse me? What's sinless perfection? (laughs) You can't go a day without committing enough sin to have you destroyed for all eternity. So why were you loved? Why were you chosen? What is at the root of why you are here in Christ? He loved you because he loved you. That's the answer. He loved you because he loved you. In himself, in his abundant riches he decides to share with you his goodness he loves you because he is love he doesn't love you because you are lovable he loves you because he himself is love and that is great news that is wonderful news because friend your plea is him not you your argument to bring forward, has nothing to do with you. It's all in him. When you have sinned and categorically messed up, your argument can never have anything to do with you. Well, Lord, you know what you were getting when you got into this. I'm pleading you because you are love and you sent your son to die for me. So please forgive me and keep me. Your argument has nothing ever Always to do with what you do, what you can do, what you can offer. It's entirely him. But one last thing I want to show you in this love, in this particular passage here, is that verse 13 is a high-octane Trinitarian passage. I don't know if you noticed that. Look at it again. And look at all the capitalized names. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Whenever Paul says God like that, generally, 90% of the time, he's talking about God the Father. Okay? Beloved by the Lord. Generally, Paul reserves the term Lord for the Lord Jesus, generally in his writings. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the by the spirit did you see that the entire godhead is working so that you might be might stay put and have this salvation and obtain it from eternity past the entirety of the godhead without any disagreement as if they can be of course they can't be but the entirety of the godhead is saying we're going to work so that this person might obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. You are loved. Why do you have it? You are loved. Why do you have the salvation? God in eternity past has determined to set his love on you, and he is working so that you might have it. What do we have? Salvation. Why do we have it? He loves us. Now the third question, how do we have it? How do we have it? He tells us there through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. The Spirit of God sanctified you and made you believe in the truth. And the truth there is spelled out for us in verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel. The truth is this gospel. And what is this gospel? That Jesus Christ came down, became a man, died on the cross, and by so doing made an end to the sins of all of his people, so that any man who calls on his name shall have life and everlasting. That is the gospel. That is the truth. And the Spirit of God worked in you when you heard that gospel to call you towards himself. But there's a double thing that's going on here. It's not just past tense, but it's also continuous tense. See, he sanctified you, he set you apart in the Spirit so that you might believe this, and he enabled you, gave you this belief, but not only did he do that, he continues to do that. He continues to sanctify you, to set you apart. He continues to make you remember and believe the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is the gospel. He continues to work in you, to set you apart, to make you different, so that you might believe constantly and always the truth. And that truth is this fact of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. I have a simple meditation for you as we come to a close. There are no, not giving you any do's and don'ts um, today because that comes from verse 15. You'll see that from next week. What we do now in light of this comes in verse 15. So I want to leave it here. But the application for us is a simple meditation. What do you have? Salvation. Why do you have it? Because God freely loved you and chose you to it. How do you have it? Through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. Meditate on these things. Think on these things. Think of ways in which you can keep these truths in front of your face at all times. Think on these truths. What do I have? Why do I have it? How do I have it? When you get lost and fuzzy and you start because of you're feeling in a particular way because somebody said something on social media. Always pause, remember. What do I have? Why do I have it? How do I have it? When you're feeling injustice at work or at school and something is being done to you that, you, that really shouldn't be done. Pause and remember. What do I have? Why do I have it? How do I have it? If I might give you one thing to flesh this out more practically, I'll take you to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to show you just practically to put this to put some flesh to this. I'll take you to Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6 and I'll read from verse 4. And I want you to look at how the Lord helps His people remember His truths. Look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now listen to this, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wow, Moses, that's a bit excessive. To write all of this? Yes. At least think of it, get the meaning, the principle of what he's saying. This should always be in front of you. You should be striving as much as you can to remember these things. When you're sitting down on the couch, there must be something that reminds you of these things. When you're having dinner, there must be something that reminds you of these things. When you're walking by the way with your friends and family, there must be something that you put in place to remind you of these great fruits. Create and maintain a daily ritual of reminding yourself of the gospel and all of its benefits praise god amen let's pray oh lord you have called us to a wonderful calling even now after looking at the gospel and the meaning of it and what we have in it we have only just touched the surface the we are, as it were, looking at an iceberg above the water. What you have done for us is so deep, so rich, there's so much breath, so much depth, so much width. And we will plumb those depths for all eternity. And we ask, Lord, that you'd remind us, even this week when we are tempted, that we have salvation in you because you loved us and you are continually working in us by your Spirit. Strengthen your people, Lord, and bless us. In Christ's name, amen.